Hebrews. And if you haven't been with us, I'm going to try to just give you a sense of what we've been doing. The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is far supreme. And the author of Hebrews, to give you a sense, he's writing the persecuted Christians. We think they live in Rome, but he's writing to them and they're tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the old way. They're tempted to abandon Christ. And the author of Hebrews writes to these precious Christians who are undergoing suffering. And he says, look, Jesus is supreme. And he starts out the letter and he says, look, he's greater than the prophets. And then he gets into this whole section about he's greater than the angels. He's greater than any. He's greater and far supreme over all. And from verse 4 all the way down through verse 14 of chapter 1, we see statement after statement about the person and the work of Christ. We see his deity that is fully shown. Verses 3, that he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. We see later on the Father expressing to the Son, referring to him as deity, we see this incredible claim on the deity of Jesus Christ. As we go into the end of chapter 1, he speaks about how the angels are ministering spirits unto Christ. He speaks about that Jesus is far greater than the angels. He's the one who created them. They exist to serve him. They do his will. But then we get into chapter 2, and it's as if all of this is just overwhelming in him. And he calls them to pay close attention to the things that you have heard and to be careful lest you drift from them. And so he warns them, he encourages them. He calls them to continue on and endure. And then in verse five, where we were last week, into verse nine, he, he speaks of what appears to be this pause where he goes back to what he said at the end of chapter one. And it's almost as if he's anticipating their question. Well, wait a minute. If Jesus is greater than the angels, then why did he die? If Jesus is greater than the angels, how can he be identified with man if the angels are greater than man? And then in verse 5 down to verse 9 of chapter 2, he establishes the fact, look at the purpose that God had for man. God called man to rule and to reign. He called them as kings over this earth, so to speak. He called them to exercise dominion over creation. But then we saw the devastation of the fall. And we find ourselves perplexed because while God has given that role to man, we do not see in the present those things working out according to reality. We see disease. We see devastation. We see pandemics. We see death. We see animals attacking man. We don't always see what we read in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But what is our hope? How will we see what God intended for man to be restored? And we see that the restoration that God brings to man's original design is, is through what? It's through the greater Adam. It's through the second Adam. It's through the one who has come to fulfill all that man could not fulfill. And through the greater Adam, God restores man. But what we see now as we move in verse 9 to the end of the chapter is we see this constant, it appears, significance of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why is it important that Jesus is fully man? Throughout the centuries, you know, sometimes I think what happens in 2021, we just don't have a sense of like what has happened historically. And we lose sight of the fact that, that throughout the centuries, there's been heresies. Throughout the centuries, there's been misrepresentations of who Jesus Christ is. And people have erred on the fact of saying he's not really a man. He just appears to be a man. He's not really he may appear to be a man, but he doesn't have a human nature. He's only divinity. There's others that say, well, he's not truly 100% divinity, 100% humanity. He's 50-50. Some say, well, he didn't become a man until this point, or he didn't become God until this point. And so to discuss and to define who Jesus Christ is, is of utmost importance. And we see throughout church history 
This has been a challenge, and this has been a call. I told you I really enjoy reading Stephen Cole, and he brings up something that we looked at last Sunday night in our class on Christology. And you think, what is that? What's important? Well, at the Council of Chalcedon, you may be like, why does that involve me? It does. At the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, it was affirmed that Christ is one person with two natures. The divine and the human, in unchangeable union, it maintained, it says here, the unity of Christ's person while distinguishing between his two natures. And it's significant this morning. You may be thinking, why is it so significant that Jesus Christ was fully human while being fully God? It's of great significance And today we're going to see one of the things that we've done before at church on Wednesday nights with the kids as we've gone through the New City Catechism. And the New City Catechism is a modern day catechism. And one of the questions reads like this, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Notice the answer, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffered the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. It is absolutely necessary that he be fully human in order to be our representative. But then we read, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So this morning, as we jump into this fantastic passage, let's keep in mind this important topic. Verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. This morning, we're going to start a two-week series here of seven reasons why the humanity of Christ was essential. Seven reasons why the humanity of Christ was essential The first one we're going to see, it was essential in his substitution. His humanity was essential in his substitution. And and I want you to see this in verse 9. In order for Jesus to be an adequate substitute, he had to be fully man. He had to be fully man to be our substitute. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower Than the angels. We saw this last time, so I'm not going to spend as much time on number one today, but I want you to see this because what does it mean? He, remember in Psalm 8, it spoke about mankind that we had been created a little lower than the angels. And then we saw that Christ Jesus enters the story as the Son of Man. Mankind is referred to as son of man throughout the Old Testament, but so is Messiah in the new and even in the old. And so what we see is in this case, Jesus Christ, the greater Adam, fulfills what mankind could not do. And he was made lower than the angels. And we immediately say, wait a minute, how can divinity be made lower than the angels? Well, he's speaking about something similar Paul did in Philippians 2. He's speaking about the incarnation. And you remember when we read in Philippians 2, we read about the humiliation of Jesus. I want to go back to that passage because anytime we discuss Christ in his coming to earth, I think it's really important that we get it right. And Philippians 2 helps us to get it right. He says, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But look at the next passage. But emptied himself. And immediately people say, what did he empty himself of? It couldn't have been his divinity. He is the son of God, the divine son of God. But what, one, one thing that's been brought to the table here is that one of the ways in which he was emptied was his recognizable glory, who he really was. He condescended and descended down to the depths of the earth. He came to this earth and was willing to take the ridicule, the scorn, the mocking, and that glory that was his with the Father before time began, he was willing to empty himself of the recognizable glory that we see at the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did he do? He humbled himself. And that's exactly what we see. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at that passage, we see the need of substitution, and we see that this whole idea of Christ being made lower than the angels. And then it says, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Earlier in Hebrews, we looked at the fact that Christ was exalted, that after his resurrection, he was ascended, he was exalted at the right hand of the Father. This appears to be what he's talking about again, that he's speaking about as a result of what he accomplished, as a result of fulfilling what God had called him to do and what he willingly did. He was crowned with glory and honor. But then it says, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He had to do this as a human. This morning, I want to ask you a question. What are you depending on to make you right with God? What are you depending on? And maybe I should ask it like this. Whose works are you depending on? Are you depending on yours? Or are you depending on Jesus's? You see, Christ tasted death for those who would place their faith and hope in him. And what we see here is that throughout this passage, one of the problems that we all have because we deal with flesh, and what does flesh do? The fleshly way that man seeks to bridge the gap between a holy God is to work for salvation. There's a reason why every religious system in the world apart from Christianity, has a method and a means of approaching God through the means of work, through the means of self-effort to get to God. But what we see here is that our situation was so bleak, our sinful situation was so serious, it took the perfect God-man to come to take our place. We could not do this on our own. We needed Christ to taste death for us. This morning, I pray that as we go through 9 through 13, that you would consistently be reminded of the call of Christ to you, to be identified with him, trusting in his sacrifice, his substitution. But again, think about this idea of a human substitute. We see it in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We camped out on that passage a little last week on Sunday night, but we did a lot of work on Isaiah 53, 4 on Sunday night. And here, surely he has borne our griefs. Now notice the language of substitution here. He bore his griefs? No, he bore what? Our griefs. Why? He's our substitute. He carried his sorrows or did he carry our sorrows? Our sorrows, why? He's our substitute. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And look at verse five. But he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. Look at the next one. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. We see it over and over and over. I love this comment I came across in one commentary. He said, and, he, and hear, hear this out. By his incarnation and work, Jesus, God, the Son incarnate, has reversed the work of the first man 
and became our Lord and Savior. He has become perfectly qualified to meet our every need, especially our need for the forgiveness of sin. Given who God is, it's only the incarnate Son who can redeem us by doing a divine human work as our Redeemer. Now notice how he breaks down these two parts real quick. As the divine Son... He alone satisfies his own judgment on sinful humanity and demand for perfect obedience. As the incarnate son, he alone identifies with us as our representative and substitute. This morning, it required a human representative. Do you remember the passage in Galatians 4 where Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. It took a human representative in order for God to be our substitute. But look at the second one this morning. The second way we see his humanity was essential in Hebrews 2, 9 through 13. In his suffering, we see that his humanity was essential. In his suffering, Notice in verse 10, for it was fitting. What does the word fitting mean? Appropriate, proper. It was fitting and appropriate that he, and then he speaks for whom and by whom all things exist. Now, you've got to really like watch your pronouns here because this is Trinitarian language. In verse 9, he speaks of God the Son, but in verse 10, it was fitting that he, speaking of God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. We were created for God. I tell you, the only way that we will find clarity for our life is by seeing it through the lens of the scripture. Young people, a lot of you here are young. Your body hadn't broken down yet. Cherish it. Go run this afternoon just because you can. Go jump in a lake today just because you can. The, uh, a lot of you are, are going to grow up and you're, you're going to put on different, I've got my reading glasses right here. You're going to put on a set of glasses in order to see the world. And you're going to have different options. You're going to have the option of a worldview of the world and you're going to put it on. And immediately you're going to see life through the lens of progressive culture. And it's going to let you see the world through its definitions, its perspective, its philosophy. But it's only when you put on the lens of what scripture tells you that you actually find why you are here. Young people, why are you here? Are you here to get a job one day, to marry someone, to have a good job, to do a lot of good things, to make a lot of money, to have a lot of fun? What is your purpose? And we see it right here. And you got to see this. The Bible tells us it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Why do you exist? You exist for one reason alone, for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. And if you live your life outside of why you are designed to be here, you will be miserable. You will live a futile existence and you'll live apart from God. But if you look at what the scripture says, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. I don't know about you, but, but I, when I do things my own way and I put on my own spectacles and I look through a wrong lens, man, I get messed up quick. Can you relate with me? Man, I can go the wrong way, but we see the scriptures say, no, the father for whom and by whom all things exist. And then he says something fascinating. In bringing many sons to glory. I love this. So often we water down the idea of salvation to where God is just begging people to come and be saved. He's just begging people like he's powerless to do it. No, he brings many sons to glory and he does it by his own sovereign, powerful will. I love this. It, he, he, he has established this purpose. He's established this plan. And what is he doing in bringing many sons to glory? This involves the sons and the daughters of the king. I want you to be encouraged today. God has an eternal plan that he is fulfilling. An eternal plan. He, things exist for his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, we got more catechisms today than you've ever heard. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God, enjoy him forever. And when we begin to understand who he is, why he has brought us into this world, and that he has brought about a plan that would include us to bring many sons to glory, You see this in like John 6, it gives reference to this idea. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Look at this idea in Isaiah 53, where it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Notice this next part. He shall see his offspring. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of even as the suffering servant was prophesied to go to the cross, it was well known that there would be a follow-up to the cross. He would raise from the dead and there'd be many sons that he would bring to glory. And they would be his offspring. They would be his people. And so what we see here is that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, God has to do this He has to bring us to glory. You know, when we think about our original design, why were we created? We were created with a purpose. We were created to bring glory to God. We were designed as those who had dominion over the the earth. And, And that totally got blown up, didn't it? And totally got marred and distorted because of the fall. How in the world can we be restored to our former glory? The only way we can be brought to glory is that Jesus has to bring us there. He has to bring us there. He, again, how are we going to do this if we're depending on ourselves to be good enough to please God? It doesn't work. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. This morning, I've got good news. You may be thinking, wait a minute, you mean to tell me I can't be good enough to please God? Absolutely, but here's the good news. Christ Jesus came perfectly God, perfectly man, and he's the only one that can establish and do and accomplish that in your life. He brings many sons to glory. He's the planner of our redemption. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we go. We get into the second part. It's not only essential in his substitution, it's essential in his suffering. You think, what do you mean? How does this work? Why is this significant? You see, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation. Now, what does that mean? The word could either mean pioneer, leader, or captain. Now, think about this. The Father, in the Godhead, in the wisdom of God, the plan was that Christ Jesus would come as the pioneer, blazing a trail. Christ Jesus would come as the leader. He would come as the captain. And as he came as the captain, he would, it says, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I tell you, this is not an easy passage, is it? You got to work through these things. What does it mean? And how is it that the divine son of God would be made perfect? I thought he already was perfect. Well, we got to look further here. The word can mean leader, originator. Again, it's the idea of pioneer, but but perfect is the idea of making perfect by reaching the intended goal. You see, when we look at this, it's not the idea that uh, he needed to become perfect in person, but it's the idea, if this makes sense, of perfect in function. That, That God had a plan And in order to reach the goal, Christ Jesus had to suffer for our sins. You see, I like how Stephen Cole puts this. He says, wasn't Jesus already perfect? Yes. He is perfect in his divine attributes, and he is perfect in his moral obedience. But to be qualified as the captain or the leader of our salvation, he had to experience the suffering that humans go through as a result of the fall. To be our perfect substitute, he had to be without sin himself, but he had to experience life as a human in this fallen world to be our perfect, sympathetic high priest. Does that make sense? He had to to go through that suffering. 
He had to go through the suffering. And what's amazing is, is that we see something here. Wait a minute. You know, you go, one question might be, where do we see this in the Old Testament? Do we see the idea of Messiah suffering for the people? And we do. We see it in Isaiah 53. I just looked at it. We see it in Psalm 22, a quotation in verse, later on in verse 13. Look at this. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, which ultimately is fulfilled in the suffering of Christ. We even see it in Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, later speaking on, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. But what is the author doing here? The author is showing that Christ had to suffer to fully identify. In order to be a substitute, he had to be human. In order to be the one who suffered for us, he had to be human in order to identify with us. And what a way that it identified not only in a perfect sacrifice, but with the people and what they were enduring as a result of their persecution. I came across this, and this really blessed me. It says this, it, this too would have been important for the original recipients of this letter, for it tells us plainly that the suffering of Jesus was fitting and right. Here is suffering that is purposeful, that is redemptive, and that has meaning. Simply knowing that such a thing exists is important news for people who were themselves undergoing suffering and hardship. And listen to this last point. Even more to the point, the thing which they ought not to miss and we with them is that if suffering was fitting and right for our Savior, what does that say about the place of suffering for those that identify with that same Savior who walk in his steps, who take up his same cross? And yet there are many people within the body of Christ who go to churches all over the country this morning who will be taught that suffering is not God's will for the Christian. You see the danger in that? Because what happens in life? Do we suffer or is it hunky-dory? Do we just, that's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> that's my, more of my skill set, my knowledge set right there, hunky-dory. But <laughs> is it, do we just walk through coasting or do we go through suffering? Let me ask you something. Have you ever been tempted to get disillusioned in life when things got hard? I found more and more people, I can't tell you over the years, how people that have gone through tragedy, that have gone through crisis, that have gone through unexpected trial, immediately believe or tempted to believe that God has abandoned them. Let me ask you something, and be honest because it'll encourage others. How many of you have been tempted to think that God is abandoning you in your suffering besides the pastor? There's a lot more in here that just didn't raise their hand. And you know what? What you see here is this reminds you. What do we learn in Hebrews 5? Christ learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. And what we see is, is that the author is writing to these dear people, and he's going to hit on this next time, next week. He's going to show them, we have a high priest who, because he took on full humanity, he identifies with us in our suffering. He's not just one who sees it at a distance. He's one who identifies with us fully because he is our human representative. As our human representative, he suffers for us. And in his suffering, he gives sense to our suffering. Because what do you see with Jesus? Suffering preceded glory. And just in the same way it works in the life of the believer of the Christian. Suffering always comes before glory. I want to show you just briefly um, 1 Peter 1.6. He says, in this you rejoice though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Remember James 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I want, to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself a question the next time you're going through trial 
the next time you're going through suffering, I want you to say, wait a minute, if God has promised to conform believers into the image of his son, what means has he saw fit to accomplish that more than any other in the scripture? Obviously through the means of the word, but through suffering, through trial. And, and what we see here is that his humanity was necessary. But thirdly, we see not only in his substitution, in his suffering, but thirdly, in his sanctifying work. You're doing, I appreciate you listening so closely. These are tough, meaty passages, but we've got to work through them. The temptation is, ah, just give me something to make me feel good today. Give me a you know, motivational talk. Let me know something about how I can be a better employee or a better husband or a better wife. If we don't have a high Christology, it affects every area of our life. And what what the author's doing, he's saying, look, you got to understand who he is. He is supreme. He is supreme. He is the son of God. He is fully divine, equal with the father, same in nature and substance. And he is fully man identifying with you, understanding and bringing about total redemption. You see, he says in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So now we see this idea that Christ sanctifies What does that mean? It's interesting. It's the word that means holy. It's the word that we literally, it's grouped into the same words that we get saint from. It's it's the idea that he is holy. He consecrates us through the consecration of himself. This is phenomenal because apart from him being fully human, This is impossible. You've got to see what he's doing. He can't be a substitute if he's not fully human. He can't can't fulfill the goal apart from suffering as a human. He can't accomplish the work apart from being crucified as a human in order that he might sanctify us. I'll give you an example of how this plays out. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, one of the four times it's used in the book is in Hebrews 2. Another time is in Hebrews 10. It says, and by that will we have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His death, his sacrifice had to take place as a human in order for us to experience sanctification. The idea of being sanctified, how many of you have washed dishes lately? I, I don't want a lot of you lying to me this morning so you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just kidding. I'd be lying if I said I'd been washing dishes a lot. But when you have dirty dishes, what do you do? If, you're, if you don't use your dishwasher, if your dishwasher's messed up, or if you don't have a dishwasher, you got to take the dirty ones and you got to separate them into another pile. You take a dirty dish, you clean it, You set it apart for a different use and a different function. We've been taken from the family of Adam. We've been taken as those in Adam under being enemies of God, estranged from God, and through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, through his substitutionary suffering death, by grace through faith alone, we have been set apart. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And there's something that takes place. There's an instantaneous act of sanctification that happens at conversion. We are set apart in the God, but there's a process because of that initial part. The, the, the initial part is we're set apart, but the process is because we've been given a new life in Christ, now there's a progressive aspect. There's gonna be growth. There's going to be a change. I told the first group, I think sometimes a better question than asking people, are you saved? Because a lot of people in the Bible Belt say what to that? They say, yeah, I'm saved. A better question may be, are you being saved? That would make them look funny. That's like my dad used to say, that's like a, you know, a calf in a new gate. That's like, what? 
what am I being saved? Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that those who have been justified will be sanctified? Yes, we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And he did this through his offering of his body. I found this passage. I'd never seen this in relationship to this. I don't think I've ever seen this. In the gospel of John, it says it this way. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, wait a minute. You know what he's saying there? In order for us to be sanctified in truth, he has to consecrate himself, which requires what? A human body, full humanity. In order for us to be set apart, we have to have a divine human representative. And a human representative brings that about. It brings it about in such a beautiful way. Let's just keep going here. First, in his substitution. Second of all, in his suffering. Third, in his sanctifying work. His sanctifying work ensures that those who are in him are on this process of growth. Hebrews says later on, without holiness, we will not see the Lord. It speaks of this, this, this purposeful work of the spirit within us that is gradually growing us. How many of you have either had kids in the past or you've seen nephews and nieces or cousins or little brothers, and, and when people see them, they go, oh, I can't believe how much you've grown. I used to, when I was a little kid, I grew like crazy. I remember one year, I grew six or seven inches, and everybody that I saw, I can't believe how much you've grown. And I was like a 13-year-old kid, like, oh, brother. And they'd look at me, and they'd be like, you've grown so much. I can't believe it. Everybody I saw, they always said that to me. But isn't it interesting? When you live in the family with people, you don't see the growth that others see. You ever notice that? And in the Christian life, doesn't it feel like sometimes the only growth we have is we're crawling along? But by the grace of God, those that are his, while it's going to be slow at times, while it's going to look like at times it's not even happening, those that are truly in Christ are sanctified by the sanctifier. And what does that mean? That true life in Christ is manifested not just by profession of Christ, but by what? His work in his people. He brings them along. But this final one this morning, I pray would thrill your heart. I jump backwards, the fourth one, in his acceptance of us as brothers. You realize this morning, Jesus is not ashamed of us. You ever feel like that there's no way that he could accept me? We all know our inconsistencies. Sometimes I think, wow, you know, if people could only hear how I just talked to Ann in the kitchen, or if people could ever just hear how I blew it in the car with Luke or Andrew or Will or Ben or Abigail or Ellie, there's a lot of possibilities. And, uh, and I think, you know what, and I'm tempted sometimes, I'm tempted to go back to a mentality that measures my acceptance before God based on what I do. It's like a legalistic platform. I I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, I remember one time I was driving with Dad downtown, and he said, hey, roll up that window. I said, why? He goes, there's enough legalism in this city to get all over you. And he was right. A lot of people during that time of my life in Chattanooga, they stressed what to do, but they didn't understand the gospel. It was about what you did. And so everything that you did as a Christian was measured by what you did, by what you didn't do, by what you did. And so one night if I blew it in my thought life, one night if I blew it in my temper, one night if I blew it in other activity, what happens? I immediately, I think God is not accepting of me. So what are we going to do? In order to come to a conclusion of his acceptance of us, we have to be reminded of the gospel. And his humanity is going to, I pray, just thrill your heart. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, in the New American Standard, it uses a term there that's not there. It uses the word father. And it's, it's not a translation. It's actually an interpretation. 
And basically, the, the, the translation team of the New American Standard said, that has to be talking about the Father. So they filled the word Father in. They said that he who sanctifies, Christ, and those who are sanctified have one source, and that one source must be God the Father. I think in this case, they're wrong. And I'll tell you why. I believe that what he's doing here in this context is he's speaking about the humanity of Christ. And I wholeheartedly agree with Stephen Cole here. The words translated one source, I believe, to be to our common human nature. What's the one source? He became human. He identifies with us. See, what is he going to do? He is now not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? We have one source. We've been made common. You say, well, how can he be made common to us? He condescended. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He goes on, the point then is this, because Jesus shared our human nature and also our suffering, he is one with us. He identifies with us as members together of one spiritual family and is therefore unashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Wow. Wow. How many times growing up, my sister, we were really close now. We weren't close then. <laughs> She's like my, one of my best friends now, but when we were younger, we didn't want to look at each other. And uh, I remember there were times, you know, if she was doing something with her friends, you better stay out of here. Don't come in here. And I hear that a lot at my house when people are around. And, and, and that's understandable because that's the, way, that's the way human nature works with being a kid and don't, get, don't bother me. Don't bother me. Why? Because sometimes we find ourselves ashamed of our siblings and we don't want them around. But this morning, let me ask you something. Aren't you thankful that because of the work of Christ, and aren't you thankful because he was a willing substitute and because he was a willing sufferer and because he had a plan that was going to be achieved that the Father had set? Aren't you thankful that he is not ashamed of us? This is the gospel. I pray today some of you may be here and you've been in church, you've heard substitution, you've heard substitution, you've heard it, you heard it, you heard it, but it's not taught, it's caught. It's caught through revelation of the spirit. And you've, you've always felt like I'm not acceptable. I'm not acceptable. God doesn't accept me. God doesn't accept me. And it's because you keep gravitating back to a works based system. But thanks be to God in the infinite wise plan of God. He has come to be our substitute and identify with us in our weakness. And he has come to die for us. And now he is not ashamed of us. I pray that sets you free. You know what that means? The implications of that is that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I am in him. And you see what, what, what the author's doing here? Is he, he's going to show them that under Judaism, there was an old covenant but in Christ, there's a new one. And in Christ, the new covenant is far better than the old one. He's not ashamed of us. I wonder this morning, are you ashamed of him? It's a humbling question, isn't it? Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you ashamed of the one who's not ashamed of you? Would you speak forth who he is to coworkers? Would you speak forth who he is to teammates? Would you speak forth who he is to, to people in your na the neighborhood? You see, what I love about this is, is he's calling these people who are tempted to be ashamed of him and walk back into Judaism. He's saying, he's not ashamed of you. He identifies with you. Understand the greatness of Christ. Next time we're gonna get into these quotations and they're, they're tremendous. He gives three Old Testament quotations one from Psalm 22 and the other one from Isaiah 8, second and third from Isaiah 8. And they hit over and over and over. But this morning, I pray you'd see the greatness of Christ. I pray you'd see the greatness of Christ. He has humanity and it's essential in his substitution and his suffering and his sanctifying work and his acceptance of us as brothers. He accepts us.
Where's your faith this morning? Where's your hope? Are you trusting in your own work? Are you trusting in the work of Christ? And it's only in trusting in the work of Christ that you receive the glorious exchange of blessings. He takes your sin. He, you receive his righteousness. Today, as we go into the Lord's Supper, I think it's so fitting, you know, that we take the Lord's Supper today because we're dealing with Christ coming, you know, in one of the, uh, in one of the verses, quotations, he speaks about Christ singing. You, just, you know, maybe you've never thought about Jesus singing in the Bible, but it speaks about it here. And the other place that we hear about Christ singing is when he left the upper room. He sang with the disciples as they departed the upper room on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what? It is precisely because of what we studied this morning that we can even take the Lord's Supper because he was willing to become a man and come die in our place. So what we're going to do as we, I pray, flesh out, uh, I pray today that you'd be encouraged about suffering. Are you suffering today? I pray you wouldn't be discouraged. I pray that, that you would see that uh, Christ, you are following in his footsteps of what he's called you to live and look to him. He suffered and he will bring understanding and he will bring endurance as you suffer. I pray you would see this call not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to understand because he's not ashamed of us, we can live unashamed of him. But today as we go to the Lord's Supper, what we're going to do is we got a table over there and a table in the back. And uh, we've done this before. So just as time permits, as you see an opportunity to get in line or go, you can. So uh, I'm going to pray and let you start moving around the room and getting what you need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you became a man. Lord, that you didn't just look like a man, but you identified with us. And Lord, I pray we would see, even Lord, as we are, Lord, I know even in my own heart, even as I studied this, I've been sort of praying in my heart, like, God, show me, show me how to apply this in my heart, in my life, and in my day-to-day, Lord. These are lofty, amazing truths. But I pray, Lord, your spirit would reveal them to our hearts and that we would see the beauty of Jesus and that we would follow him with all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you can move around and get what you need here. I'll beat you. Here's good news. Been by you. No matter what. Others may say Your darkest sins Be forgiven You will always Have a place A table of grace Your cup's never empty Plates always full And it's never too late Love never 
as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you, like, uh, when you come to the Lord's table, like, who should take of the Lord's table? Uh, historically, and, and I would believe this, the way that people were identified with the body of Christ were Christians, people who had trusted in Christ and been publicly identified with Christ in the waters of baptism. And that was the identifying mark of like people that had now come into the faith. It wasn't a view that baptism saved you. No, Christ saves you by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. But then as saved individuals, baptism became a public proclamation that they were a part of the body. And so like historically, that's who needs to take of the Lord's table. And if you're here today and, and that doesn't apply to you and maybe you're not a Christian, I want you just to listen because like today what we've been looking at is not just an information lesson on who Christ is, it's an invitation to you. It's an invitation to you that Christ came as a substitute for your sin. It's an invitation that he's the only one who can make you clean. He's the only one who can sanctify you. He's the only one willing to suffer for you. He's the only one willing for you to be identified with him by grace through faith. And so today the call goes out to you. I pray you trust in Jesus. And as we take of this Lord's Supper, I want you to think of that call. And I want you to think of the serious nature of it because Jesus was so clear of the urgency of the call that he said, believe. Belief in John was urgent. It wasn't passive. It wasn't later. And he always was clear to say that those who did not believe, the wrath of God was already upon them. So today I call you to believe on Jesus. And as we take of this supper, be reminded yet again of how he has worked at the cross. But we read in 1 Corinthians 11, and I pray today it just hits you. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So do you realize that Hebrews is such a commentary on the theology of what Christ was doing for us. Let's take of the bread and remember Christ. But then we keep going. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So today we, we look at the cup and we're reminded of uh, Christ, 